and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. While theatres are closed here in the UK and much of the world continues to hunker down as we eagerly await more positive vaccine news, we're bringing you a slimmed-down November podcast. But do not fear, we are readying for a bumper festive episode for December. In this pod, we have a roundup of the latest opera news and an interview with David Greed, leader of the Orchestra of Opera North for the past 42 years, which was recorded as part of this year's Leeds Opera Festival back in August. It was great to chat with David earlier this year, learning what exactly the leader of an orchestra does and covering some of the memorable highlights of his time with the company. First though, here's the latest news. The winners of this year's RPS Awards have been announced. They included Natalia Romanu for the Singers Award, Garsington's Turn of the Screw won Best Opera and Music Theatre Production, and the Opera Stories Lockdown Films were awarded one of the Inspiration Awards for projects carried out during the pandemic. We also had the announcement of this year's Olivier Award winners. Outstanding Achievement in Opera went to the Children's Ensemble in Eno's Noah's Flood, and for the Best New Opera Production, the Royal Opera's Billy Budd took home the prize. Congratulations to all of the winners and nominees. Now, you may remember that a couple of months ago, we spoke to the director of the virtual opera project, Rachel Hewer, and their film of L'Enfant de Sautelage is now available to watch online. It's received glowing critical praise, including five-star reviews from The Times and The Observer, so catch it while you still can. Head over to vopera20.com. The Grange Festival have announced their intended programme for their 2021 Summer Festival. It includes A Midsummer Night's Dream, La Cenerentola, Man on Lesco and My Fair Lady, as well as a theatrical production of Shakespeare's King Lear, with some notable opera singers in the leading roles, including Sir John Tomlinson as the King himself. Now, there's lots of opera that you can watch online, on OperaVision, on YouTube, wherever it might be. I've picked out a few highlights of what you can be watching online and on TV and radio over the next few weeks. The baritone Roderick Williams presents a three-part programme on BBC Radio 3 of Britain in 10 operas. They're available to listen to now. You can also catch up with English National Opera's Mozart's Requiem, which was on BBC Two a couple of weeks ago on the BBC iPlayer. There are various productions you can watch on the Royal Opera House's website, including a concert production of Handel's Ario Dante. On the 3rd of December, BBC Radio 4's Behind the Scenes looks at Opera Glassworks' lockdown film of Turn of the Screw with the conductor John Wilson. And on the 12th of December, there are two things to feast your ears and eyes on online. Opera North present a concert production of Beethoven's Fidelio, and Northern Opera Group bring Pauline Vido's Cinderella to the silver screen with a new film version filmed on location in Leeds. Cast includes Claire Wilde, Nicholas Watts, and James Cleverton. That's available to watch from the 12th of December. Head over to northernoperagroup.co.uk for more details. Now, it's the age-old question, is it possible to enjoy opera if you live in the north of England? According to the MP Jake Berry, there's a cultural divide in the country, with the football-loving North and the culturally-enriched South. Have a look at the show notes to find a link to Mr Berry's speech and let us know what you think. And finally, we're going to cover this in great detail next month, but if you need cheering up, Jonas Kaufman's Christmas album is available to buy or stream now. Just go and have a listen. And so, here's leader of the Orchestra of Opera North, David Greed, who I spoke to back in August as part of the 2020 Leeds Opera Festival. Before we start uh, talking about Opera North, let's just actually kind of have a little bit of a chat about your role. I'm, I'm sure we all kind of know what a violinist does in an <coughs> orchestra, but the leader of an orchestra, what, 
what does that mean? What does it what does it mean that you kind of do? <laughs> well, I've been asked this question a lot, and it never it never gets any easier to answer it. Um, but I think I've managed over the years to sort of narrow it down to three things. So one is to try and play as well as you can and be set set most of the examples you want to set in one's own playing. I mean, that was clearly a big part of, of what I'm supposed to do. Um, secondly is for me, and these are all personal things, to try and create a really positive atmosphere in rehearsal, which takes on board all sorts of things. But um, it, I think you can have you can have influence not by saying words, but just from the way you work. And humour is an important thing for me. You know, if you have to diffuse a sort of tricky situation I think humor can be extremely valuable I mean it could go terribly wrong as well so uh, you know it, it's a thing you have to try and develop um, yeah, well I, I always think the best directors and conductors are also sort of great psychologists as well you know there's something about knowing how to um, tap into people how you say kind of how to how to change your mood as well so um, well, yeah I mean I certainly wouldn't call myself any sort of psychologist but but to tap into the more positive things is, is something that you can pick up as the years go by. And, um, and then the other thing, of course, is to have a great relationship, if possible, with the conductor. Uh, and, you know, we have, we've had some really great conductors at Opera North over the years and maybe some not quite so great. And I think that's where the real work has to be done. And so I try and be supportive, which is definitely the job of a leader. Um, communicate well, maybe offer advice if, you know, you've got to be receptive to advice if it's going to work. And some conductors aren't fantastic at that sometimes. But um, it, it's a very important piece of the jigsaw, I think, to, to be able to communicate with the conductor and help him or her through problems uh, if their gestures aren't working. And, and I suppose a big role in terms of uh, Opera North is, as you say, you, you, you have music directors, so, you know, most of the time you'll, you'll have a conductor who's quite familiar to the company, but there'll also be those conductors that kind of come in and out as well. So I suppose a big part of your job is helping those visiting conductors get to know the orchestra, um, how to work with them and, and that sort of thing as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I suppose the guest conductor area is is as big as the uh, the familiar conductor. We have our music director um, and we just have a new one, which is terrific. And then we have a series, we have staff conductors and we have, then we have all the guest conductors. And uh, I think the rehearsal process for the orchestra and the conductor is a relatively short one. Um, if you're a member of the chorus or one of the principal singers, your your rehearsal period will could last, I don't know, eight to ten weeks, because they have to learn the moves, they have to learn the words, um, everything. For the orchestra, you might the scenario might be that the orchestra will come into that process towards the end. So we might have a couple of days of rehearsals, 
and a couple of a day's rehearsal with the singers and then three days rehearsals with the stage and the production. So that process for the guest conductor is, is quite a rapid one and it can probably be quite daunting. And I was going to ask about that, actually. I mean, how much as an orchestra member do you feel part of a production? You know, as you said, you know, the cast and the production team have been in rehearsals for weeks and weeks and weeks, draining every nuance out of every word, out of every action. And then the orchestra just sort of slots in towards the end of that process. I mean, do you really kind of feel part of a production being in an orchestra? Um, you can do, depending on how open your mind is, but it, I don't think it's essential. I think at the end of the day, we go, we turn up and sit in our seat and play as well as we can in collaboration with our colleagues and the conductor. And let's face it, most of the players in the orchestra have their backs to the action anyway. Uh, so there, there is, there's no sense that you can be a part of something if you can't even see it. <laughs> um, so I think that's, it, it's different for different people. For me, some operas, I really love to get involved in the action, the story, the, the arias. Um, but, it, but as I say, um, it's not essential if, for you to give of your best. That, that is the, the communication to me goes orchestra through the conductor and onto the stage, roughly speaking. Well, that, that was another question I was going to ask. That relationship between kind of pit and the stage or sort of, you know, orchestral member and the, and the singer... Um, is it very much you just have to have the complete sort of faith in in the conductor to be that sort of channel between kind of the the triangle again? Kind of how much do you feel as though you are, I suppose, kind of working with the the singers, and how much is it just kind of the conductor being the complete channel between those elements? Uh, well, it depends on the piece, but with our more familiar and core repertoire, you will find that most of the players are are readily familiar with with the work let's say Traviata, Tosca, La Boheme, Marriage of Figaro and they know how to accompany and in all the most difficult acoustics and I'm talking about most of the acoustics we play in the the, the orchestral pit is is not an easily manageable space for an orchestra and sometimes again we in the pit and I'm thinking of the let's say the Lowry Theatre where the pit is deep if you hear anything coming off the stage at all you're very lucky so in moments like that we have to depend upon the clarity of of, of um, movement from the conductor but most of the time we know what's coming and we know what might happen and I think bearing all of that in mind or uh, opera orchestras are become fairly tremendous at accompanying. Whether how much a part of that is the conductor is variable, I think. If it's a modern piece with difficult rhythms and a piece that nobody knows, then the conductor is absolutely vital. So it, it varies from piece to piece, I would say. And you mentioned there about the repertoire that the orchestra obviously knows so well, your Traviatas, your Figaro's. Uh, I mean, the question I always like to ask people is, you know, how do you, the, you know, the thousandth time that you've played in Traviata, I mean, how do you kind of keep being excited about these pieces? How do you kind of keep that, um, 
kind of artistry and sort of sometimes spontaneity going with things that you've just done so many times before? Well, I think there's one good rule of thumb, which is to try and imagine you're uh, a member of the audience uh, coming to see this for the very first time. You've got to take that attitude. Um, for me, um, getting excited about an opera comes easy with some pieces. Most pieces, I would say. Um, and so actually the buzz of performing keep presses back any kind of feeling of routine, if I can put it that way. Um, and so that's, I think that's when you decide what your favorite opera is because you are really happy at the prospect of playing it again, maybe for the hundredth time, uh, like me and Figaro, for instance. And so there's no problem about a stale performance coming out because of uh, over familiarity. And, and kind of very briefly, what are um, some of your favourite operas? And you mentioned there, there are some that you're not, not quite so keen on. Um, I don't know if you can maybe tell us maybe just one or two of those as well, where it's a bit more of a struggle to kind of get the... Um, yeah, the all right, I'll try. <laughs> I'll try, David. I, I, wrote, I wrote a little list this morning and I keep crossing things off, <laughs> putting them back on. Um, you know, they say, as you as you get older, and I, I suppose I am a little bit old now, you kind of go through that um, great repertoire of the Romantic period and the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And um, you find your way, you, see, you find yourself going all the way back to Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. And that's where I've ended up. So if, if, if I had to pick one opera now, today, um, it would have to be The Marriage of Figaro. That's such a, that is a piece I could play, I probably played it 150 times, had a brief check, something like that. And if I had to play, let's say, some Donizetti or Bellini, 150 times, I think I'd probably die. <laughs> that, those sorts of operas, you know, I think you, you're bound to know what I'm talking about, but the, uh, an opera which is very, very singer-orientated with the orchestra providing what is relatively a simple accompaniment throughout the opera. There may be a de half-decent overture and a, and a prelude in the middle somewhere, and I'm not talking about Verdi. Not, not in the slightest bit. But those sorts of operas are tough for the orchestra. And if you ask a second violin player, for instance, very tough, because they'll spend their, get my arms up here for you. They'll, where am I going? They'll spend their whole evening going, mm, chuck, chuck, mm, chuck, chuck, mm, chuck, chuck, and the violas too. That sort of opera is less interesting to a to an orchestra player, so I'm going to go for the Marriage of Figaro, and I'm going to go for La Boheme as a very very close second, Puccini, and then it has to be the Ring Cycle, which is a very special sort of experience, and an immense and it, and it takes over your soul doing that piece, but. Um, it's got to be up there. Well, we'll, we'll certainly come on to the, the ring cycle and some others um, a little bit later. Um, yep. 
let's go back then to kind of 1977, 1978, the, the start of, of Opera North. Um, what, what was your background kind of coming into it? I know that you were um, obviously very, very young and fresh faced at the time coming into the leader of an orchestra. And, um, you know, how did kind of the job come about? How did you kind of uh, get into the start of Opera North? Um, well, if I'm going to be honest, David, um, I was just fairly average at college. There were some far better violin players at college than me. So I tootled along, thought, well, OK, got to the end of my fourth year. Better find a job. <laughs> I did get a job. It was in the what is now the Birmingham Royal Ballet, was then called the Saddler's Wells Royal Ballet. Not a full time job, but a 30 weeks of the year job. It was great. Had a lot of fun. That was the 1977 to 78 season. And sometime during that period, there was an advertisement put out for a new orchestra, um, a new opera orchestra, a new opera company, the entire company, to be formed in Leeds starting in uh, September of 1978. And my teacher persuaded me not only to go for a job in that orchestra, but to go for the leader's job. And not having huge amounts of self-confidence, I thought, well, okay, give it a go. And I, I managed to get through two really tough auditions of an hour each. I'll, I'll never forget them. They're etched in my mind, really. And got the job, age 22, leader of a, of a new professional orchestra in the UK. That was just the beginning, really. Um, I mean, I clearly hadn't a clue what I was doing because you don't, in those days, I think it's different now, the conservatoires are really good in these areas of orchestral discipline. Uh, but I, there was no training at the Royal College of Music in the early 70s for how to be a leader. Generally speaking, it would be find the flashiest player with a the greatest amount of confidence, plunk him or her in the leader's seat and let them go, let them fly with it. Um, I couldn't do that. I had to learn how to, how to make a section play together, how, and then this long process of people skills, which I didn't possess much of at all. And that's, I suppose that's the, the, one of the largest development features of my time at Opera North has been uh, talking to people. I'd like to think. <laughs> a lot of my colleagues might disagree with me horribly, but that's what, I've, that's what I feel I've developed with more than anything else. Um, as you were saying at the, at the beginning, obviously, you know, they saw the talented violinist in you, but that, that personality as well, you know, that it didn't have to necessarily be the the flashiest kind of most confident violinist, but there was also something about your personality that they thought that's, you know, that's well, the kind of person that we need taking on this, this new um, exciting and slightly daunting uh, <laughs> job. Well, uh, my, my, to my great fortune, my two teachers at the, uh, at the Royal College of Music were um, firstly a bloke called Felix Cock, who was the leader of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra for a good couple of decades, I think, under the, the baton of mostly of Louis Fremeau. And then my second teacher was also 
uh, kind of freelance leader in London. And he, he, his teaching was not just of the violin, but of the things I spoke of just a few minutes ago, how to sit at the front of a section, sit at the front of an orchestra, told me loads of stories about fearsome conductors that made me quake. But I began to realise the sorts of things that he, his name was John Ludlow, still still alive today. I'm in touch with him quite a lot. Who would, who would, I think as I've tried to explain, try and make the best of a situation for your colleagues. He said, when the, he said to me, when the chips are down, you're a member of the orchestra. You're not, you're not a, a lackey of the conductor. You're not a member of the management. You are a player in the orchestra. And those, those are the words that have stuck with me the most. So, yes, there was no... I had no, no training or skills for that particular seat in 1978. So a real... A real classic example of having to learn on the job hmm. I mean I suppose you know a lot of you were kind of learning together you so say it was you know the first kind of permanent opera company in, in the north of England and there was obviously a lot of civic investment in the scheme but was there ever any worry that Opera North was was going to be kind of a short-lived thing you know it's, it was just launching up you're kind of coming into it fresh um 42 years later still going strong but at the start were there ever any worries that this this just might not work hmm. There were many moments like that, and a lot of the players. I, I think if I, I'm, I hope I've remembered this right. I think there was a mix of maybe seventy-five percent people like me, fresh out of college. Twenty-five percent, the other end of their careers, and it was quite an interesting mix. And for the young ones, that that larger seventy-five percent chunk, there was always this fear that because it was a new company, nobody had heard of it. And that perception lasted for quite some years. You'd talk to somebody, some old colleagues from down in London, and they'd say, where, just, where is Leeds? Just remind me. Oh, there's an opera company. That lasted for ages. And it was, you know, it was, it made us think that we didn't, we weren't quite, ever quite on the map for quite some time. And I think, well, I happen to know that in the early 80s, there were some, there were one or two moments, really dark moments, when the company was in great peril. Um, I only learned that sort of after the events, but um, during that early period, therefore, it was very difficult to recruit new players because they were looking for a job for life, maybe, an opera north. English National Opera North, as it was first known, um, didn't provide that security until way into the 80s when we became much more of a national force. Hmm. Going back to, to 1978, I mean, the opening opera of Opera North was, was uh, Samson Dana by Sanson. Um, it seems like a bit of a, a, an odd choice. What was it about Samson that that kind of made it right for the launch of this opera company in the, the north of England? I think it was a brilliant choice, actually. I know what you mean, because it's not a vastly popular piece, but it was a, it's an opera that employs all forces of the company. Big chorus piece, big orchestral piece, lots of potential technical stuff in, in the production on stage, 
and uh, some amazing principal singing roles. So actually, I thought it was a great choice. Alongside that, in that very same season, uh, we played La Boheme, <clears throat> which I suppose is a piece that um, is the opposite. You know, the most popular piece. What are you going to start an opera company with La Boheme, of course? And then a, an interesting double bill, um, Purcell and Poulenc, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, the, was it the... Dido. No, we did Pers we did Dido and Aeneas, coupled with a a short opera by Poulenc, which is again a really odd piece. <laughs> but in that first year, seventy eight to seventy nine, the company produced twelve operas, twelve opera productions, and and that's not lasted. I mean, it couldn't. But uh, I mean, we're now down to. Well, we're down to nothing at the moment, but um, <clears throat> typically in the last few years, six opera productions and then the big one in the spring where we would squeeze in the ring cycle and concert performances of Aida and uh, Turandot and Salome. So, I mean, still a very, very big year's programme of work. Certainly, big pieces to to end the year on as as well. Certainly, no small undertakings. <clears throat> trying to trying to do those, and so certainly not a ring cycle. Yeah. Um, just kind of finally on that that kind of opening season. I mean, what do you kind of have any, any memories of that that opening night, both in terms of how the performance went and just kind of what the the feeling in the the, the kind of the company was at the kind of at that time. Well, yeah, I do. Um, um, it was an amazing evening, live on Radio Three. And a Leeds audience or a Leeds-based audience that was just so ready for something like an opera company in the city. And it was it was a joyous night. I mean, that's all I can tell you. It was it was ex the the month-long run into the first night, November the 15th, 1978, um, culminating in, as you said, Samson and Delilah. It was tremendous. I mean, it was such such a feeling of achievement from every member of the company, and and that lasted. That feeling went on most of the year, I would say, and then um, we knew that we were we were onto something um, really big. It was great. Yeah. Forty two years on, Opera North still going strong. You're still going strong at, at Opera North. And um, what are kind of some of those moments over that time that that really kind of stand out for you, if you can kind of just pick a few highlights in that time. Well, there's a random little selection. Some of them are funny in hindsight, but not funny at the time. So... Those are my favourite. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of those. So, um, speaking of Samson and Delilah, when we were on tour with that piece after the lead season, I think we were in Nottingham and there was... <laughs> There was a terrible catastrophe on stage, which led to the scenario that in Act Three, <clears throat> when Samson pushes the pillars to dismantle the temple, the temple had dismantled about 20 minutes earlier because somebody tripped over the wrong piece of cable. <laughs> so poor old Samson, this uh, French tenor, I remember him, 
had he just went through the motions but there were there was no there were no bricks left everything had gone it was all and we could have killed ourselves you know it was so funny after the event but it was a real catastrophe I guess the other one i remember is more a bit more recently we played um <coughs> excuse me uh, we were playing the turn of the screw britain one of britain's chamber operas so there was only me as the first violinist single players and, and there's a lot of this strumming pizzicato stuff in turn of the screw which you either do in guitar position or traditional and i i made this amazing swipe on a fortissimo pizzicato chord and i managed to break two strings out of four and the third string wound itself down completely and I, I just looked at it. You know, normally you would just, <clears throat> you just, it happens. Dive into your case, get a new string, put it on. Um, but two strings, three strings, it took me a whole act. And I would just put the fiddle down occasionally and try and play a little twiddle that was crucial on the, on the wrong string. And then I'd go back to, to uh, putting my strings back on. But it was it was a horrendous moment. But it, it's very funny to think back on it. <laughs> well, in both of those instances, that there are kind of two kinds of people, aren't there? There's there's the one kind that will find a way to to get on. They'll find a way to look past the fact that the the temple doesn't exist anymore. And then there's the others where sort of blind panic sets in. Yes. Yeah. Um, all these things. These, people, yeah. yeah, these things are so much easier to recount several years later, but <laughs> <laughs> the feelings have gone away. What about any of those kind of moments that, um, yeah, maybe where things didn't go wrong, but things went extremely right, you know, those kind of real kind of standout moments? Yeah, well, I've got, uh, I've thought about that. I, I'm, as, again, I'm going to come back to any time we do a performance of Mozart, <clears throat> particularly in The Marriage of Figaro, with a really good conductor and really good singers, that's a memorable evening for me because I just think the music is unbeatable. And it shows off the orchestra, it shows off singing. Doesn't involve the chorus very much. That's the only disadvantage of Marriage of Figaro. But, but we have to do it and we do do it regularly. And it's, it's my favorite piece. And then bearing in mind that um, Opera North Orchestra is a symphony orchestra as well. I remember a performance of Mahler, Mahler's Second Symphony in Leeds Town Hall with both Leeds, you know, Leeds has two <clears throat> choruses, the Festival and the Philharmonic Chorus. And they joined together, big orchestra, obviously, probably 85, 90 players, but, based, but the core is Opera North, the Orchestra of Opera North. And we played Mahler too, and it was the most amazing, amazing performance. I can remember at all and it was that sort of concert that when it was over we'd sort of reluctantly start to walk off the stage and the audience didn't leave some of the audience members sat there for i don't know 10 15 minutes after the concert was over so it was the most inspiring event um that I can remember, apart from the ring cycle, which I know we might come on to. So, so those those two 
sort of elements of music are the ones that at the, today stick in my mind. Well, you know you're doing your job that day when the audience won't leave, when they can't get up from their seats. That's a, yeah. that's a job well done day, isn't Agreed. it? Agreed, yeah, that's right. Um, you mentioned it there. That, I mean, the ring cycle, I suppose, is the moment that a lot of people will think about with, with Opera North, still a relatively recent event, but such a momentous undertaking and such an absolutely extraordinary um, series of performances. And I saw one of the full cycles in Leeds. It was uh, it was just absolutely <coughs> tremendous. Um, I mean, what I've, I've spoken to, to Richard Farns for one of our documentaries earlier this year about, about the ring cycle and the, the importance to a conductor of the ring cycle. I mean, what about the importance to a, to a leader of an orchestra of, of doing something on that scale? Um, what kind of did doing the ring cycle mean mean to you? Well, it, I don't know. It's hard to put it into words. It was just the most. I'm going to I'm going to talk about Richard Farns for one minute, and if he was here, he'd absolutely hate it. <laughs> you know, when you hear an instrumentalist play on the radio, and you can tell who it is, which <clears throat> implies that it's not so much about the music they're playing as who they are. Um, and my favourite violinists are the opposite. People like Isaac Stern and Itzhak Perlman. You know that you're listening to a great violinist, but it's not about them, it's about the music. And that's what Richard Farns is. He's, of, of all the conductors I've met <clears throat> or seen, he's the one that brings us to the music and only that, not, not him. It's amazing. He's amazing. And because of who he is, you know, he's he's not known in the sense of Jimmy Levine or or, or Bernstein or Schulte um, or Papano, but he's the same. He's in the same class. And that was the first most inspiring thing for me to just sit in my seat and watch him conduct 18 hours of music absolutely selflessly and bring the very best out of the orchestra. And the format, <clears throat> which was what we call semi-staged, um, with the orchestra fully on show and the singers in front of the orchestra so the opposite of an opera theatre, where they'd be behind us. Uh, it gives for a very, a very good sense of balance, perfect, more perfect balance between singers and orchestra. You, you probably noticed that yourself. We, we, we spend most of our lives uh, worrying about whether we're too loud for the singers. And in a, in a, a semi-staged format, which I think Opera North has, has made its own, uh, over the over the years, everything works perfectly for the orchestra, with without fear of of drowning out members of the audience. So Richard was able to bring absolutely the best out of us for every minute of that eighteen hours, um, and because we played it, I think we might have. Well, we'd we'd previously done it in four segments over four years, going all the way back to. 2012 probably <clears throat> and then 2016 was the year that we put the whole thing together and so from the beginning of March to mid-July uh, with the exception of one week it was nothing but the ring 
in that one week off that we had, by the way, we had to, we had to play Mahler's Eighth Symphony, <laughs> which we could have done without at the time, but it was <laughs> it was actually fantastic in the end. Well, so got to keep you working, you know. Yeah, well, very much so. I mean, it was it it just takes over your. I'm, I've never been a massive Wagner fan, but I I'm just in awe of the scale in which he frames his work. Uh, it, it, it's extraordinary. And so, and the challenge to try and play every note is actually futile. <laughs> and I have it on great authority that Wagner, when he was, you, you've probably seen the scores, and I'm sure, uh, just, you know, you, you just keep turning the page, turning the page, and the, the, the pages are filled with black notes, semi-quavers and worse. Um, and then you then you come to realise that it, you are wasting your time a little bit by trying to nail every single semiquaver. That there is a bigger picture, and so all the fire music, for instance, is actually unplayable, pretty much. But so long as you you frame it in your own mind as to to what's possible and why you're doing it. Um, that's that's how to address those horrendous passages. Well, that's very reassuring for me because I've I've never believed in playing all of the uh, all of the notes. There's too many notes. <laughs> well, many no, me too. <laughs> um, uh, just kind of finally on that on that ring cycle, singers obviously talk about their routine and their their eating and their warming up and to kind of get through a performance. I mean, is there a sort of a, a patented kind of uh, David Greed regime to get through, <laughs> you know, five and a half hours of a good to demo ring or whatever it might be, or um. Not so much. Is it more mental fortitude than physical? Well, it is part. It is well for for most instrumentalists. It's it's physical, of course, but but there is this mental thing. So I, I <clears throat> thinking back, I w I wouldn't even try and do anything else on a day where a performance starts at four o'clock and finishes at actually with intervals finishes at half past ten maybe. Um, so you've got you've got to you've just got to take it easy. You've got to eat at the right time. There's always a long interval in these big operas, um, so you know you can have a snack or a meal then. But you know you've got to actually think think your way through the day. What shall I do when I'm when I've got up? Not too much. This is going to be exhausting. Have a meal at lunchtime, and then make sure. If we're going to get really graphic about this, the right Das Rheingold is two hours and 40 with no interval. So remember, folks, to go to the loo before you walk on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, it's all that sort of stuff. The audiences, you know, you've got to get you've got to get your timings right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, it, as I say, a, a project that um, it will live in my mind for as long as I do. And I'm so pleased to have done it because for many years at Opera North, you think, well, this is a great opera company, but how on earth are they ever going to be able to put together, afford the ring cycle? Unfortunately, um, some money came to the company and it was ring, feng, ring fenced to be used to produce the ring. So that, that was the motivation that the company needed to, to make it happen. And the, the, but the greatest thing about it all, really, 
was when we finally we took it to London and performed it at the Festival Hall. And uh, the notices were incredible. It was a massive hit. Really yeah, well, I think anyone that's seen it live or, or even online, you know, the online experience is also fantastic. We'll be delighted that Opera North finally got around to the ring ring cycle a few years ago. Just um, in time, yeah, for me. Just, just in time for you, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to finish by kind of coming on to that. Um, we've had we've had one question in from the audience. So if anyone else watching at home has got a question, do send it in, in now and we'll get to it in a, in a minute or so. Um, the final thing for me, David, was just to kind of talk about the, the, the here and now. Um, I assume kind of the last few months is probably the longest you've gone in maybe 60 years of not performing in, in front of real people. Um, but you did get back to live performance last week. Um, I mean, how, how was that experience last last Friday and kind of how do you kind of feel things are, are kind of shaping up going forward? Not just for yourself, but I suppose kind of uh, opera and, and orchestral musicians yeah. more generally. Right. Well, the thing, the thing about last week's concert was that... Um, we started this conversation a month ago <clears throat> where the Leeds City Council was very keen to try and pilot a live concert with some kind of live audience. That would have been a first. And it got snatched away from us because of new legislation. Um, and then the whole thing happened again two weeks after that when we thought we were getting there. And then on one Friday... I remember it clearly. It was it was the beginning of the snooker world championships because I was going to go there on the Saturday. Uh, there was an announcement on the Friday to say that phase four, which was to do with indoor events with an audience, was to be postponed indefinitely. Um, so we failed again. This time it happened and it was amazing. I knew this was going to be an emotional event. First of all, I had to help direct it because we weren't having conductor so we had a very a very energetic quite tricky rehearsal on the the day before on the Thursday of last week where we for the first time sat in our distanced seating which puts a semi and think of the Mendelssohn octet and a big semicircle of players well this semicircle went right across the Leeds Town Hall stage and so we had to become accustomed to fine-tuning our hearing and working really hard to play together because it was not as easy as it normally is but we managed we managed it and we and it was great it was the most amazing performance and the, when we walked out here's the telling thing David we walked out onto the stage for the beginning of this concert and the 250 strong audience dotted and littered around the hall they went mad we just stood and had to soak up this applause and appreciation for like a couple of minutes, you know. And that's when the real importance of it sort of hit home. So the, the concert was a great success. Uh, great comments from friends and people I know come to the opera a lot and concerts. Um, so hopefully it's the, it's the, the early shoots of something much more positive developing um, because it needs to, you know, whether the industry is shattered, the whole entertainment industry is shattered, but the classical music opera world is, is in pieces and it needs help. And you see so many wonderful things 
going out online. We were talking about it earlier before before this went live. The, the things you can do online and stream, and it's great. And people are developing uh, ways, technical ways of do, doing this well. Even if you're like 50 miles apart, you can do a piano, uh, violin and piano duet, which I've tried to do. And but of course, it isn't the same, is it? It's it's not the same as being in the hall. It never, never will be. Um, which is why I'm so pleased that, well, it looked for a moment like the, the last two weeks of the proms, that you might be able to do something similar to what we did last week. As it turns out, it's live, but only streamed with no audience. But we've got to get over that next little hurdle and then maybe we'll be okay. But, but in the meantime, and you'll, you'll be fully aware of this, that there are some amazing little <clears throat> arts companies, theatre companies who, that have not made it. They don't exist anymore. And that's, that's one of our personal tragedies, um, people who inhabit the, the business. So, yeah, undoubtedly very, very difficult times, but um, I, think, I think you're quite right in that. What we have to do, and I think what we're all trying to do is, is pushing those ways to kind of get back, doing things safely, but kind of getting things back in front of audiences. And as you said, audiences are just so delighted to be able to, to get back. Um, hopefully, you know, your event and the events that we've been doing over the past few days as part of the festival are just kind of part of that story of getting things back up and up and running again. Yeah. Um, going to end just with a very quick question uh, from a viewer at home, which I think is a very good question. Um, they say, whenever I leave the theatre of an opera performance, the orchestra have already uh, got onto the street before we've got out. Which section of the orchestra is the fastest to leave their seats? Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I think we're all pretty equally determined to, <laughs> to get home and have a glass of wine. <laughs> That's a good question. There are certain operas, as you will well know, or maybe you don't, where, where a, a little, I think Carmen is like this. You come out, uh, the, the, the one particular section of the orchestra actually finishes before the opera does. So they'll be way gone by the time we've taken our applause. I think the respectful answer is that we, we leave in a very circum section circumspect way when we're allowed to <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that